Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. I would invite you to take your copies of the scriptures this morning and open to the book of Exodus with me, Exodus chapter 12. In a moment, we will read the first 28 verses of Exodus 12. As you open there, I'm reminded of what it says in Psalm 130, verses 5 and 6, when the psalmist writes this, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. And in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. Are you waiting for something? Is your soul waiting for something? And how good it is to hear that the psalmist says that his soul hopes in the the Word of God. As we wait, is our hope found and built upon what we read in the Word of God? Never will fail us. Never will lead us astray. And you hear the desire there in his voice, more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. Imagine keeping watch over the city and with the cover of darkness... There's more danger, more danger for invasion, more danger for things to help and happen by stealth. What does the watchman long for? He longs for that first glimmer of the dawn, when light will be cast over the city, when everything that is shrouded in darkness will be exposed by the light. He says, I wait for the Lord more than that watchman who waits for the morning. I anticipate what God will do, and what God will do through his word. What do you expect God to do through his word? I wonder if it's ever that we do not expect God to do much from his word, and so maybe then we're not surprised when nothing happens. But I wonder if we would come expecting God to do much from his word today, that God can and will do much, more than we could ever think or ask or even imagine that God would do that and so then that we would grow, glorify him, be comforted and encouraged by his word. As we hope in his word, let's stand together and read Exodus chapter 12, these first 28 verses. At the end of these verses, at the end of 28, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and together we will say, 
Thanks be to God. Let's read God's word together. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb, according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each one, each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it. With your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses, for if anyone eats what is leavened, from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statue forever." In the first month from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places. You shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he 
passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, incline our hearts to your testimonies. Open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things out of your law. Unite our hearts to fear your name. And satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love. That we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Russian novelist, historian, philosopher, perhaps one of the most well-known Soviet dissidents during the communist regime was named Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And he gave this reason as to why the horrors of Soviet communism came to pass when he said, men have forgotten God. That's why all of this has happened. That is not only a devastating reason for what happened in the USSR, but it is a devastating reason down throughout history. When we see any atrocities against humanity, any moral decay, any destruction in the world around us, that's the reason that still resonates in our hearts and in our minds today. Why are things the way they are today? Is it not because men have forgotten God? Surely it is, but that is not all. As one writer adds on to that quote, men have forgotten God, they have also forgotten man. That's why all of this has happened. A right, true, biblical understanding of who God is and who man is are the basic building blocks upon which any flourishing and thriving society is built. It is with these that the most basic and fundamental questions about life are answered. How did we get here? Why do we exist? Who are we? And what has gone wrong with this world? Do you ever ask yourself those questions? And maybe we even ask this, to whom are we accountable? Maybe, though, for a moment we would push back on that quote, that men have forgotten God. That sounds a bit soft, doesn't it, sometimes? Like merely it was an accident, like it was only a lapse in memory, a mistake that can easily be fixed. But what if it is not that merely some have forgotten God? What if they have deliberately cut God out of the equation altogether and purposely distorted who man is. 
This would be a more sinister, evil, and wicked plot to contend with. Perhaps some have forgot, but some have gone the extra mile to do all that they can to make sure that they do forget God. Not only that they forget God, but they would desire that others around them would forget God as well, and that their memories would never be jogged. If men have forgotten God and man, or if they have tried to do away with God and elevate man to some position which he does not possess, and if this is what has gone on throughout the centuries and continues to go on today, then this is why we need an event like the Passover in the Bible. This is why we need Exodus 12. The Passover, that event which describes God's action of passing over the Israelite houses, sparing them for, from destruction. And it makes it so that we cannot forget who God is or who man is. It exalts God to his proper place, and it humbles us as men as we are instructed about who we are and what it is that we really need and what it is that has to be done for us that we cannot do for ourselves. The Passover is a watershed moment, a major milestone in the Bible. Understanding the Passover does not just help us understand Exodus better. It does not just help us understand the Old Testament better. The Passover helps us to understand the whole Bible better. Once you understand the Passover, you begin to see it everywhere in the Bible. It's action and it's imagery is such that biblical writers use it over and over and over again. They cannot get away from it. They cannot get over it. Because the Passover points to the heart of God's unfolding plan of redemption. You want to understand God's plan of redemption for this world, you need to understand the Passover. And let us remember that this is called the Lord's Passover. It's His. It belongs to Him. It draws us to Him. It points us to Him. And in the end, it causes us to worship Him. The Israelites got it right at the end, didn't they? They bowed their heads in reverence and in awe, and they worshiped God. Here is one of the reasons why we need to understand the Passover and get it right, because it leads us to the right, appropriate, and necessary response of doing what we were created to do, which is to worship and glorify God. What is it that leads you to greater expressions of worship in your life? Is it a more meaningful tune to sing to? Is it mood lighting in the sanctuary? Is it dependent upon how you feel today? Is it about creating the right atmosphere and the best experience for you? Since when is worship about us? It's not about us. Worship is about God. It is given to God. It is all for God. And when we get it right, we sing with the psalmist, not to us, O Lord, not to us, 
but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Oh, then how we desperately need the Passover. How we cannot look past it or avoid it or ignore it. Because it is the means by which God elicits true worship from our hearts and souls. And as we shall see, it will be our worship, the theme of our worship, throughout all eternity. What truths does the Lord's Passover teach us? Well, we began last week with two truths. I wish I could say that today we'd go through two more truths but today we will do truth, truth number three. But the first truth that, two that we saw last week, the Lord's Passover begins with God's provision of new life through the death of the old life. So last week we saw how God said, this Passover is going to be the beginning of months for you. I'm going to take this event and I'm going to reorient time around this event. It is so important. It needs to be there at the beginning of your year every year. So as you come, year after year, new year after new year, at front and center is the Passover. You will celebrate this year after year after year. And it is God saying, this is a new beginning. Israelites, the old has passed away. The old life of slavery, the old life of oppression, the old life of being under the harsh taskmasters of the Egyptians. All of that is done away with, and now you are given new life to worship me, to live for me, to be my people as my treasured possessions. And how we said this is exactly what God does for us through Christ Jesus. Being in Christ is being a new creation. Behold, the old things have passed away. The old life is done away with. Behold, the new has come. New life to live following our Savior, Jesus Christ, as the one who died and rose again from the dead. Second, we saw the Lord's Passover exemplifies God's way of salvation, which comes through judgment. We talked about how we often like to talk about salvation. We rejoice in our salvation we glory in our salvation and what God has done to save us, but we must not forget that God's way of salvation comes through judgment. It happens over and over and over again in the Bible. Noah and the ark, David and Goliath, over and over. We could go to many, many events. God's way of salvation comes through judgment, and it's no different here. There is judgment that would fall upon the Egyptians. And yet God's salvation came through even that event of judgment to save his people. And that that's also what's happened on the cross where now Jesus Christ, he took the judgment of God upon himself. He bore our sin in his body on that tree so that we might live to righteousness. Our way of salvation has come through judgment as well with Jesus Christ. And thanks be to God that he took the judgment that we deserved upon himself so that we could be set free and live. That was last week, this week. Number three, 
the Lord demonstrates God's way of redemption, which comes through substitution. The Lord's Passover demonstrates God's way of redemption, which comes through substitution. So let's break that down here for a moment. Redemption has this idea of recovering something from an alien possession. Not alien like out there in the universe. Alien like someone else has what is yours. So it's recovering what someone else has that's yours, usually by way of payment. How is this going to be recovered? What is the payment that is going to be made so that you can gain this thing that's yours back? And that all happens through the payment of substitution. So we'll see that unpacked here in the Passover. We are not familiar often with high-stake contests. Maybe the highest stakes are when money is on the line, but most of the contests that we know in the grand scheme of things are not really important. It doesn't matter if the Cubs win or the Bears win. Hope that doesn't burst your bubble or the Green Bay Packers, or whoever it might be. The grand scheme of things, those aren't very important. They are not like the contest that we see here in Exodus. Here we have a contest between Yahweh, the Lord, and Pharaoh. Who is the true king? Who is the one who is really sovereign? Who is the one who is truly to be worshipped? This is not merely a contest of one winning over another. It is not about a contest for bragging rights. This battle has high stakes because it is a contest to the death. Who is the one over life and death? Who determines life and death? Who controls life and death? And do we not sometimes wrestle with those questions? Even more direct question in the context of Exodus is, who is it that deserves to die? We have seen the Lord make a distinction between the Egyptians and his people, the Israelites, in earlier plagues. But this plague is different. In verse 12, we see that the Lord promises to pass through the land of Egypt at night and judgment will fall on all the firstborn of Egypt, in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And we notice that the same judgment is to fall upon the firstborn of all the land. The Israelites deserve the judgment of death just as much as the Egyptians. They were just as guilty as the Egyptians, as sinners who stood before a holy and righteous God. And the only way to escape the judgment of death, death was through the sacrifice of a lamb. The only way not to receive the judgment and wrath of God, which was demonstrated as death to the firstborn, was to take the blood of that lamb, smear it or strike it on the doorposts and lintel of the doors of their houses. Do you see that everyone, everyone in every house was going to experience death in one way or another? It would either be the death of the firstborn or it would be death of a lamb. And this lamb the Israelites were commanded to kill was a death that took the place of the firstborn. The lamb was a substitute for the firstborn. Just as when Abraham obeyed the Lord 
and he took his son Isaac up on Mount Moriah. And as they were traveling up the mountain to make the sacrifice, do you remember what Isaac asks his father? Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Abraham was taking his little lamb, his only son, the son whom he loved, up to the mount as a sacrifice. And there, Abraham and Isaac built the altar, and then Abraham had Isaac lay down on the altar. And then Abraham took the knife and raised the knife to slaughter his son until the angel of the Lord called out, Stop! Don't do it! I know, Abraham, that you would obey me. And so your son is spared. And what happens then? Behind Abraham is a ram caught in the thicket. God has provided the lamb as a substitute instead of his son at that moment. And so it is again, the Lord provides the lambs required to be sacrificed instead of the firstborn. The lamb serves as a substitute. It bears judgment of death in the place of those who deserve judgment and death. But this substitute could not just be any old substitute. There were certain requirements And so this substitute is the payment to recover back that which was in someone else's possession. So you think about it in these terms. The Israelites were in the possession of the Egyptians. And so God was going to recover his possession, the Israelites, from the Egyptians. And he was going to do that through a payment. He was going to make that payment to buy them back. That payment was the substitute. But what kind of substitute is required? Well, this substitute first had to be a public substitute. It had to be a public substitute. This sacrifice was not done secretly. It was not hidden. In fact, each household was to sacrifice their lambs at the same time. Look at verse 6. When the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Here is the action that is taken by the whole assembly. Why are they the assembly? Because they have all assembled together to kill their lambs together. Not only was the slaughtering a public affair, but the smearing of the blood on the doorposts and lintels was also a public affair. The bloodstained doors were right there for everybody to see. You could not hide the fact that a substitution had been made. The blood of the lamb upon the houses was the public declaration that you had substituted a lamb for the firstborn in your house. And as we look at these requirements for the substitute, we can see how this Passover is the sign of the greater act of redemption that comes through Jesus Christ, who is now our substitute. And so as our substitute... Jesus Christ is the public sacrifice that was made for us. He was nailed to the tree for all to see. He was derided and mocked as people passed him by. His was a public action taken where people witnessed 
his death, the death that we deserve to die for our sin that fell upon Jesus instead. And this is the public portrayal of Christ that not only happened 2,000 years ago, but this public portrayal continues to happen today. How does this public portrayal of Christ continue to happen today? It continues to happen through the preaching of the gospel. When we proclaim and preach the gospel, it's a public portrayal to the world that Jesus Christ was crucified for us. In fact, listen to what Paul says in Galatians 3.1. Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. How could Paul say that? Were the Galatians there at Golgotha when Christ was crucified? No, they weren't there. So when was it that the Galatians had publicly seen Christ portrayed as crucified? They had seen it through Paul's proclamation of the message of salvation. And it was when they saw him publicly portrayed portrayed as crucified through Paul's proclamation of the gospel, they saw their need for a substitute. They saw their need for someone to die in their place. They believed that Christ died for them in their place so that they could be given life. Jesus is the public substitute betrayed before our eyes. It is public so that you would know it. Jesus' crucifixion is not hidden from you today. It is a public portrayal so that you would believe the gospel and so that you might even continue to believe the gospel. And so this substitute was a public substitute, but this substitute was also a perfect substitute. The lamb of the Passover had to be perfect. Verse 5 says that this lamb shall be without blemish, This could not be any old lamb from the flock. It could not be the weakest. It could not be the lamb that you would want to get out of the flock to make the flock stronger. Like, it'd be easy to sacrifice the runt, right? Sacrifice the runt. He's the smallest. He's the weakest. This was the best young male lamb in the whole flock. Look for the best, God said. Find the one that has no blemish. Some commentators even suggest that this is why there was a delay from the moment of selection to the moment of killing. Did you hear that? They were to select the lamb on the 10th day of the month, but they didn't slaughter the lamb until the 14th day of the month. Some say it was those days in between that you would evaluate this lamb, make sure that this lamb has no blemish, make sure that it is perfect, make sure that everything is in order, there's no limp, there's nothing, nothing wrong with it at all. Then they were to kill the lamb on the 14th day. Make sure that this lamb was perfect so that it would be an acceptable sacrifice. And only a perfect substitute is an acceptable sacrifice. And so it's the same with Christ as our substitute. He had to be a perfect substitute. Nothing less would do. That is why his life is important to us. It's absolutely necessary that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. Nothing less would do. 
It's necessary that he knew no sin. It had to be that Christ was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. He obeyed God the Father perfectly, and it's through the perfect life that he lived, whereas he earned the right to die for his people. In fact, this might be how we determine the value of Christ's death. Why is Christ's death so valuable to us as Christians? Is it not because of the value of his life? He lived the perfect life. He lived without sin. He was tempted and knew the burdens that you and I know every single day, yet he never scratched the itch. He never gave in. How valuable is this life? This life never knew any sin. Not in thought, not in word, not in deed, not in affection. To think that that perfect life, the perfect life which did not deserve to die, would then die. The value of Christ's death is found in the value of Christ's life. And we need that perfect sacrifice because no other substitute would do. If it had to be a perfect substitute, only Jesus would do. If there was any spot, any blemish, any imperfection, any sin in Christ, his death would be utterly and completely in vain. It would not mean anything. It would not be worth anything. And so we cannot and must not compromise on this truth. Jesus Christ lived without sin as the perfect son of God. And that strikes at our heart because not only was he a public Substitute, not only was he the perfect substitute, but also a substitute that has to be killed. It's the only way. The lamb that was selected from the flock, they watched over it for a few days. It could not remain alive. Look at verse 6. And they were, they were told to kill their lambs at twilight. In verse 21, it says they were ordered to kill the Passover lamb. There was no other way for the substitute. Either the firstborn had to die or the lamb had to die. Either way, there was going to be death. This is the working out of what Paul says in Romans about the wages of sin. For the wages of sin is death. What does sin earn? Sin earns death. Somebody has to die. Divine justice demands carrying out the penalty for death. And it was the death of the substitute that satisfied God's judgment and wrath. And the death was evident because the blood was applied to the doorposts and the lintel of the doors. And this is why Jesus had to die. This is why his blood had to be shed. There was no other way. He had to take the penalty he had to take the wrath. He had to take the judgment so that all who believe in him would be shielded from the wrath of God and would be given life. Not only 
Did Jesus have to live the life that we should have lived, but he also had to die the death that we should have died? His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. But why did he do it? Why did he die? Why was he killed? Because he was the public, perfect, killed or slain sacrifice, who then was the atoning sacrifice, the atoning substitute. You look at that word atoning, it comes from the word atonement. If you split that word apart, just very easily, very simply, atonement, you can think of at-one-ment, at-one-ment. And that describes what atonement is. It makes us at one with God. It brings us to God. It makes us so that we are at peace with God. We are no longer separated from Him because of our sin. We no longer stand before Him as those who are guilty because of our sin. We no longer stand as those who deserve, deserve His judgment. We stand as those who have been cleansed for our sin by the blood of the Lamb. We stand as those who are forgiven. We stand as those who are declared righteous by him. Notice what verse 27 says. The parents are to relay to their children that this sacrifice, do you see that word there in verse 27? It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. As the sacrifice, it has significance to the Lord. As a sacrifice, it is done for the Lord, as a sacrifice, it is worship to the Lord. As a sacrifice, it is meant to atone for the people's sin so that the Lord would pass over them. They were to be shown as those who had been cleansed or purified by the blood of the Lamb. And this is what every man needs. This is what every person needs. Everyone Whatever your background, wherever you're from, it doesn't matter. Everyone needs to be cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. And how do I know that this is the case? I know this through verse 22. Verse 22, look at what it says there. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. It seems weird to us today, doesn't it? I mean, we're, we're moved from this... <laughs> If I were to tell you, okay, take a bunch of hyssop. Hyssop is a tree, and so they're saying, take a branch from this tree, dip it in the blood that's in this basin, and rub it on your doors. That action that they were to take of this hyssop branch with this blood was to portray a cleansing action. In fact, this hyssop and this hyssop branch becomes synonymous, becomes the same as cleansing throughout the Bible. So you can hear it in what David says in Psalm 51. He says this, Purge me with what? With hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. And so there it is. This hyssop branch, again, has this idea of cleansing that takes place with it. Cleansing of sin. But where do we see the hyssop branch perform its last and final act in the Bible? It's there at the crucif crucifixion of Jesus, isn't it? 
Look at me, or look with me at John 19 for a moment. Turn to John 19, verse 28. John 19, 28. When God writes his word, he's very purposeful. You see that here. Verse 28, John 19. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on what? On a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Behold, the hyssop branch, where in Exodus 12, 22, see how it is dipped into the blood of the lamb that has been collected into the basin. See how those people took that branch and they struck it on the lintel and their doorposts of their house. Look at how the people remain behind the door, being shielded by the cleansing blood of that lamb. And now, now see the Savior lifted up on a wooden cross with nails hammered into his hands and feet, with a crown of thorn pressed into his brow. Hear him gasp just enough to say, I thirst. See them fill the sponge with sour wine and place it on the end of a hyssop branch and hold it out to Jesus. And there is Jesus drinking the sour wine and here with one last breath, he cries out, It is finished. The end has come. He has bowed his head in one last act of worship to his Father and gave up his spirit. And his blood that was shed is the atoning blood that is able to cleanse people from all of our sin. The cross of Jesus has become the doorposts for the whole world so that all who would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Go back. Go back to the beginning. <laughs> Go back to Adam and Eve in the garden when they had sinned. Go back and see how Jesus had killed an animal to cover them with that skin. One animal for one person. See how now in Exodus they take a lamb, one lamb for each household to cover them, save them from God. We see a little bit later the Day of Atonement. We've gone from an animal for a person to an animal for a house. Now to the Day of Atonement, uh, here is a lamb that is to make atonement for the whole nation. Is God done? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away what? The sin of the whole world. This is the salvation, the payment that Christ makes in full, and there is nothing more to do. There's nothing more to pay. It is finished. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. 
yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for what? For our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. We are made pure through his death. Christ is the public, perfect, killed, atoning substitute that we need if we are to have any hope of being saved. No other sacrifice will do. No other sacrifice can accomplish what he accomplishes. The sacrifice and shedding of the Lamb's blood was never to be an end in and of itself. It was always pointing forward to a greater act of redemption. And how humbling it is for us to know that we cannot save ourselves. Do you believe it is through Jesus' sacrifice alone that you will be saved? Do you believe that he has done everything necessary to redeem you, to atone for your sin, and to bring you to God? It's what the call is for you today. If you have not put your faith and trust in Jesus, now is the day to look to this Savior to call out to him, to put your faith and trust in him and say, I believe Jesus in everything that you have done on that cross to save me from my sin. I cannot save myself. I cannot do it on my own. That you would repent of your sin, turn from your sin, and turn to him today. What does this truth that God's redemption comes through substitution do for you if you are a believer in Jesus Christ today? Well, turn with me to one more passage, 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 13. 1 Peter chapter 1. Remember I said that the Passover is everywhere in the Bible? I think 1 Peter supports that. 1 Peter 1, verse 13 says this, therefore preparing your minds for action. So let's just stop right there. Therefore preparing your minds for action. Literally that means girding up the loins of your minds for action, right? So in their day they would wear long flowing robes, right? So if you're going to go out in the field and work or you're going to fight or you're going to do something like that, you'd have to to wrap your robe around you in such a way that it would be girded around you, right? So it wouldn't get in your way. So Peter here is saying, preparing your minds for actions, he's saying, gird up the, the loins of your minds for action. Get ready. And in fact, that word there is the same that's used way back in Exodus when the people are having the meal and it says that they've put their belt on. It's the same idea. They've girded up their loins. They're ready to leave in haste when God's redemption comes. And so Peter here even calls our minds back to that feast as those people were eating this meal in haste, ready to go out of Egypt. He's saying, prepare your minds for action. Get ready. Gird up the loins of your minds. And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially, According to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Now listen, 
Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with what? With the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You see what Peter's done? You see how he's drawn our minds back to the Passover? You see how he's saying, you can't get away from this believer? And what does he say? He says, it's the fact that you have been purchased, not with perishable things like silver or gold. You've been purchased and bought. The payment has been made with something far more precious. It's the precious blood of Jesus Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So his was the perfect sacrifice. And what does that do? It motivates you to pursue holiness, doesn't it? Isn't that what he says? He says, that's why I'm calling you to live this holy life. You shall be holy just as God is holy. Because you were bought with the precious blood of Jesus. And if you know that you've been bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, you will want to pursue holiness. You'll want to go after God. You no longer want to live in the futile ways of the forefathers that lived in vain. You'll want to live in the fear of the Lord, trusting Him, pursuing holiness after Him because of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Woe to us if we would ever downplay or neglect the holiness that we are called to because then we are saying, I don't really need a perfect substitute. I'm all right on my own. Our desire to live as those who pursue holiness is directly tied to how precious we see the blood of Jesus. Our pursuit of holiness is not forged in the fire of our own goodness. It's forged in the fire of Jesus' death and resurrection. We are humbled because it is there on the cross that our horrendous and awful sin was put on display for the whole world to see. How bad is your sin? How bad is my sin? How awful and grotesque and serious is it? It's so bad and so awful and so grotesque and so serious that the perfect Lamb of God, the sinless Son of God, had to take our sin upon Himself and shed His own precious blood for us, so that the redemption price could be paid, so that we would no longer be under the, the domain of darkness, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, but so that we would be free in Christ, free to live for Him, free to follow Him, freely to daily deny ourselves and lose our life for Him. How bad is our sin? It's like a megaphone blaring from the cross. This is how awful Tyler is. This is the sin that Christ had to pay for. Who are we kidding? Who do we think that we are fooling? Christ died on account of our sin. Are you embarrassed by your sin? Are you mortified? If someone were to find out, that would be the worst thing imaginable. It's already known. It's already known. 
because you and I were so bad. Our sin was so awful that Jesus hung on a cross for it. That's how we are redeemed. Redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed by his infinite mercy, his child, and forever I am. Let's pray. Father, so great a price was paid to wash away our sin. A full price, a necessary price, a price that was paid by Jesus. And so may the precious blood of Jesus continue to motivate us to live for you today, tomorrow, and the next day into eternity. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning that does not know you, that today they would see Christ as publicly portrayed as crucified, as the one who bore their sin on that tree to save them. That they would say, I no longer want to live this life of sin. I no longer want to be enslaved to this sin. I want to be free from it. That they would put their faith and trust in him today. Father, I pray that you would do your perfect work through your word. And I pray this all in the name of your precious son, Jesus Christ. Amen.